There's there's too many things in the text this morning to possibly cover it all. You're probably tired of me saying that to you. But I, there's there's so much in the ascension that we just overlook the hope of knowing that there really is a kingdom that's in charge. All the rest of the governments we talk about, you know, people that we talk about as if they're just real forever, the U.S., Russia, China, whatever those things mean, all of that's just a show while we're dying. And then there's a kingdom with a king who didn't stay dead and will never die again. Our religion is not a pious thought or a good idea. It's a kingdom. And the ascension is his claim of that kingship, not merely as a man, but as God. So everything that we're going to say today is trying to drive that point home as a hopeful thing, as a certain thing, for you as a Christian at least, to be sure the one who is not in Christ, who does not know what this king will judge him of or as on the last day, for that person, this is terrifying news. There's actually a guy who's going to decide whether or not you're good. He's going to look at everything you've done, including your motives, and all the places you've lied to yourself, he's going to say, well, you didn't lie to me. I knew what was going on. That's a horrible thought, isn't it? And yet it's a good thought if you want to be a good person because you'd rather have a good God call you on it and turn you around, wouldn't you? So again, that's who he is. He doesn't want to destroy evil. He wants to save you. In that way, he will make an end of evil, but not you. And again, his death, his resurrection as a man is the payment of this in God's sight, right? The atoning price. It, what, it is what justifies us. Now, justified by the act, he reigns with the act as a power in the spirit of the words. So that whereas every other king has to try to get you to do something eventually at the end of a god or at the point of a sword, that is why you pay your taxes. It is. You would get in trouble if you didn't. That's how they do it, with the sword. Every other kingdom, but his not. His a kingdom that is simply going to talk you into it. Literally, telling you the way that it is until you believe it and realize it's so much better news than all the stuff you thought you'd come up with. Now again, how to get into these texts, though. I haven't even done that. I want to spend the bulk of our time today on 2 Kings. That Elijah story is just a thing and a half. It really is. In last service, I spent so much time talking about it that I didn't even get to the fiery chariots. I just skipped that part. Because we were out of time. Because everything that goes on in Elijah's life prior to this is part of what happens here, or why it happens here, and how it becomes a picture of what Jesus will do. So now we've got to zoom way out again here. We're talking big Bible picture. Let's look at Luke for a moment here. Jesus is going to say something about the whole Bible that's pretty audacious. This is our Luke text, Luke chapter uh, 24, 46 and 47. Look what he says there. We won't have time for most of the rest of this here, but, but it says, verse 45, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, verse 46, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead 
and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Now again, remember, this is not an apostle writing. This is Jesus talking. This is Jesus talking to his foremost apostles, his primary witnesses, at the moment of his ascension. And this is Jesus saying to them that the whole Old Testament means one thing, that the Christ should suffer and rise for repentance and forgiveness to be given away to everybody. The whole Old Testament says that. Now, where does it say that? <laughs> well, it says it not so much by what you might call a one-to-one direct line foretelling, although there are pieces that act that way. But those pieces that act that way are buried inside of a big pile that acts that way not by direct one-to-one, but by foreshadow, by example, by it kind of is going to look like this because that's how we're doing it now. And then when Jesus comes, he really does it. And so one of the most foremost things to get is that almost, if not, every single miracle that Jesus does, someone else in the Old Testament has done it. They haven't all done all of them. They've all done a few of them. And then Jesus comes along and he does all of them. Yeah? And so the whole Old Testament, all these stories are about what he will do. And so today's story is about how Jesus would fulfill the prophecy of Elijah's ascent into heaven by himself ascending into heaven without the need of angels' help, by the way. (laughs) He didn't need the fire and the chariots to do what he did. And yet, again, as we dig into the Elijah text, what we're looking for is these overlaps, these foreshadows, these pictures and types. And there's a lot of them here in who Elijah is and how he leaves behind after his ascension, an authority of hope and trust, right? Which we want to then understand to be our New Testament, our New Testament gospel. Okay, so let's just do Elijah's story here a little bit. Elijah is mostly in the book of 1 Kings. If you want to think about 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings as having people that are through the whole book, it's the story of David the story of, well, Saul and David, the story of David and Solomon. Then you have the story of Elijah, and you have the story of Elisha. I could throw Samuel in there as well. But those five names, Samuel, David, Solomon, Elijah, Elisha, are where the word of God stays public in Israel, while things that are set up for the word of God, the temple and the kingdom, the monarchy, sometimes they're faithful, sometimes they're not. And when they're not, God sends not just judges like Samuel, but prophets like Samuel was the first of. Prophet who anoints these kings, but the kings don't always do what they're supposed to do. And as soon as it starts going bad, who shows up? But this guy, Elijah. Where did he come from, though? Did he just kind of show up? No. One of the things that Samuel did while he was judging Israel, both before and after he anointed Saul and David to be king, was he ran a school for prophets in his hometown, uh, Ramah, back up in the mountains of Benjamin. Actually, the mountains of Ephraim that are in the area of Benjamin. The mountains are called the mountains of Ephraim. He's running a school up in this place, Ramah, the Heights, by the way, is what it's called, where pious men from all over Israel come because they would like Samuel, this great judge and prophet, to teach them what the scriptures say. And when they do this, he trains them to go back home and tell other people. 
And this is what it means to be an Old Testament prophet, not so much the inspired to tell the future and write it down, but more of the to read Torah and say what it says again, honestly and fully. And it's from the midst of that tradition, this tradition of Old Testament preachers, prophets, who act like Samuel underneath the monarchy and near the temple, it's out of that that one named Elijah starts getting loud, especially especially uh, as a king inherits the throne of Israel, that's the north now, and begins to do more evil than has ever been done. This king's name is Ahab, who's a fascinating guy in that as bad as he is, he actually repents at one point. But it doesn't do him much good, and we don't know really how he ends up in that regard. But far worse than Ahab, his real problem is not even himself. His real problem is his wife. You know her name, Jezebel. Jezebel, who he marries probably to extend his power and his relationship with the Phoenician territories on the coast. They were wealthy trading empires. They were also sorcerers and witchcraft practitioners. And the king of Sidon, whom Jezebel is the daughter of, had killed his brother to take the place and claimed to be basically a warlock running the city of this, you know, this seafaring ancient peoples. And Ahab marries this guy's daughter. And so what does she want to do? Bring her father's religion into the town, into the area. So she hires 450 prophets of this new god named Baal. You've heard of him. Uh, and these are going to go out and do the preaching everywhere, but she does more than that. She starts having arrested and killed these men who have come from the schools of the prophets of Yahweh. And so at a certain point, Elijah doesn't know where anyone else is except himself. And that's about the time that he's sent to preach that there's not going to be rain for three years. So he goes and he tells the people in Samaria, this is you know, northern Israel's capital, Ahab's capital. He tells them there's not going to be rain for three years. It's a drought because you worship Baal. And so God, it's not that God's going to punish you. It's that he's going to stop protecting you, right? Like you've gotten bonuses by being near him. And since you don't want that, all right then, here's what you get in a desert, no rain. And so this happens. When that happens, there's a bunch of other pieces of the story we'll go real quick by. In fear, Elijah leaves. He's told to go and hide in a ravine where he stays for a while and birds feed him every day. You remember that? The ravens, they bring him food and he eats it. And he's just there for a bit. Um, he's sent eventually down to Mount Sinai as well, where he has an encounter with God. Uh, in this encounter with God, he is disappointed with uh, his experience as a prophet. He's not really happy that everyone's getting killed and he's the only one left. He doesn't think this is fair. And he says to God, why is this? I just assumed it all end. And God, who comes to him, not in a fire and not in a quake and not in a wind, but as an actual audible voice that had a conversation with him, says to him, not only, you know, why are you doing this? You're wrong. There's 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal, and that's why you need to keep preaching, Elijah. But since you're tired, go anoint Elisha to be prophet after you, and go anoint Hazael to be king of Syria, Damascus, and go anoint Jehu to be king of Israel. Jehu is the guy who's going to kill Jezebel, okay? So th that's what that's about. Hazael is going to be a guy who attacks Israel from the north and weakens them so that Jehu can do all the cleanup of killing Jezebel and Ahab's line, which is, again, a curse Elijah has already pronounced. All right. So the only thing that Elijah does of those anointings, by the way, is Elisha. He goes and he calls Elisha. But that's after other things happen. First, we have this famine. I'm a little out of order, but he also stays for a while with this widow 
that's a pagan. She's outside of Israel. And God, to keep him safe from getting killed, sends him there to her house where she's about to use her last flour and her last oil for her last meal with her and her son because she has no husband and then they're going to die. And Elijah says, well, make me some too. She says, and then we're all going to die. And he says, do it anyway. And the next day, do it again, do it again. The oil keeps coming. It's all good news till the boy dies. Remember that part? And she looks at him and says, why are you even here? You give me hope and you take it away. And he goes up and he climbs upon the body of the boy. You remember this? He prays, he breathes on him. Huh? And the Lord answers his prayer. Now we're going fast, but don't miss, like these miracles have counterpoints. Think about the widow at Nain, whose son was being brought out in a funeral procession, who Jesus meets in the procession and he raises him from the dead. Think of the little girl, Talitha Kumi. He says, little girl, get up, the daughter of Jairus, who he goes into the inner room where no one else is. And he says, get up. Huh? He, Jesus does more than Elijah. And notice this too, Elijah prays. Jesus commands. There's a big difference in those two things. Yeah. But going on, he then goes after this. Ah, I jumped too fast. At a certain point, he knows he's told that the, uh, the drought is going to end. And so he runs back and he actually meets Ahab and says, you should get home fast because it hasn't rained in three years. But before you get home, the streets are going to be muddy. That all happens, but it doesn't bring about repentance at all. Jezebel is more angry than ever. Um, he causes, I skipped this one too, we're a little out of order. He brings together this event of a prophet's duel where he challenges all these 450 prophets of Baal to pray to Baal and see if he'll answer. And then he sets up an altar for Yahweh, repairs the one that had fallen down actually, and throws water on it as well, but then prays to Yahweh to answer. Do you remember this? Uh, and the prophets of Baal they're cutting themselves with knives. They're in a fury. They're foaming at the mouth. And if you ever see real paganism, they do this when they try to get the demons to come. They go crazy. They do all manner of damage to themselves. Elijah does something quite fascinating. He sits back and he says, maybe he can't hear you. Maybe, and in most English texts it'll read, he's something like asleep or indisposed. It's pretty specific where he is. And he's doing number two on the toilet, right? Maybe he's kind of stuck alleviating himself at the moment. So keep crying. He'll come later. Meanwhile, he goes and does his thing. He says his prayer and fire comes out of the sky. It not only eats the sacrifice and the water, but the altar. And he has all the people, the crowds there at that point, kill the prophets of Baal. They're all dead. But then again, this is why Jezebel, I said a moment ago, wants him dead. Specifically, him. The rain comes, doesn't matter. Get him. Kill him. He's off at a certain point finding Elisha. Quick story of Elisha. Do you remember? He's plowing with an ox behind 11 other oxen. It's like a big wealthy family, basically. They have a huge farm and he's with the crew dealing with the, the planting for the year. And Elijah says, follow me. And he says something. He says, let me go say goodbye to my parents. Elijah says, no problem. Take a day. And they do it. Remember when Jesus says, follow me to a man? He says, let me go take care of my parents. Remember that? And Jesus says, fine, well, then you're not following me, basically. You know, <laughs> uh, a different answer. But again, New Testament, Jesus takes it all to the full. Yeah? Elisha, he rejoices with his family and he goes to be the personal student and slave of this prophet of prophets, Elijah, in training. Okay, now we're going to jump ahead. We're going to jump to just before our text, 
where Elijah, J, Elisha, S-H, younger guy, and a lot of other prophets are at another place, a school for the prophets, not up in, uh, in uh, I lost it now, <laughs> Rama, there it is, not up in Rama, but in Gilgal, Gilgal. We know that Elijah had three other schools where he was teaching more prophets at a certain point how to read the scriptures underground, right? And yet also dealing with um, the various attempts at the government to try to kill them all. Before his ascension, he is sent by God to visit these three schools. They're at Gilgal. He's talking to his students. Think of it as like a goodbye, I'm leaving kind of thing. But he doesn't tell anybody what exactly is happening. He's just going to exhort and comfort them. But he knows that today he's going to be taken away. Now, what happens next is really weird. He knows because he's been told by God he's going to be taken away. And then some of the prophets come to Elisha, his servant and servant, his slave and servant and uh, student, right? Come to Elisha and they say, God told us he's taking Elijah away today. Do you know this? He says, shh. Yeah, I do. Shh. Then Elijah says to Elisha, stay here at Gilgal with all these guys while I just leave. Don't worry. He doesn't say I'm leaving for good. He just says I'm going to go away for now, right? And Elisha, knowing he's leaving for good, says, uh-uh, I'm coming with you. So they go on to Bethel, the second of these schools. And the whole thing happens again. Nothing special. Just the prophets are like, hey, Elisha, you know, this is his last day on earth. Yes, I know. Please be quiet. And then Elijah says, hey, Elisha, stay here. And Elijah, Elisha says, no, I'm going to go with you. And they go up to Jericho, the third of the three schools. Everything proceeds exactly the same one more time. God's given revelations to everybody that Elijah is leaving. He just hasn't told anybody that he's told everybody. <laughs> and, and so they keep finding out by talking to each other. Then the difference is he's not sent on by God to another school. He's sent across the Jordan River outside of Israel. That's weird in its own right, but he goes and he tries to get Elisha to stay and he won't. And then on top of this, 50 other prophets, 50 other young men at the seminary, they follow out. But they stop on the shores of the Jordan River. I don't know how big the Jordan is, honestly, compared to the rock. I can't tell you. I'd imagine it's fairly close. But they stand on the shores of the Jordan River, the hillside of it, and they look down to where on the very bank, Elijah and Elisha have gone off on their own. So these, these other guys aren't really in the crew, right? They're kind of watching from the outside and they're, they're excited, they're interested, but they don't know what's going on, except they do. They know something's going to happen. So down over there by the water, Elijah and Elisha are there. And suddenly Elisha, Elijah is taking off his cloak. Now you pick up on some of this when like John the Baptist shows up wearing camel's hair, that one of the Office marks of the prophets was austere clothing, beaten clothing. It was not like the priest. The priest would have dressed like this. The king would have dressed like this. The prophets wore uh, more uncomfortable clothing. He takes his main cloak off, that mantle, which is like the sign that he's a prophet in the schools, his personal one. He rolls it up and he whacks the river with it. <laughs> okay, but then the river splits in half. Now, this shouldn't entirely surprise you. This has happened more than once before, not only with this river, but with the giant sea, 
I remember how Moses takes the staff and the sea spreads. Moses takes the staff, he hits a rock, the water flows. God does this kind of stuff. Um, when the Ark of the Covenant passes into Israel with Joshua and they're going to go conquer, the water of this very place probably splits open again and they walk through on dry ground. Now it's all happening again, but they're leaving. Why are they leaving? I don't know exactly, but let me suggest to you, they're, they're going to where the other great prophet died. Or they're going at least to not Israel, outside of Israel, where the other great prophet died. Do you remember how before Joshua and the ark and everybody else goes into Israel, Moses dies? He dies on a mountain away from the people within eyesight of this river. And the text says he is buried by God. Now that has led some to assert that means he ascended too. I think to say that someone, to say when it is written that he was buried, it means that he ascended. That seems to me to be the opposite of what it says, right? So I wouldn't, I wouldn't suggest that to you. I think he really was buried over there. His body's really over there somewhere still today as God desired it to be. Nonetheless, outside of Israel, waiting for the fulfillment of the promise, waiting for it all to truly come to pass. So why does Elijah leave? Because Christ hasn't come yet. The ascension that must take place from that land, the real Jacob's ladder that's climbed by a man, it won't be by Elijah. It'll be by Jesus after he's conquered death, yeah? So Elijah is still outside in that way, a picture of what has still to come. They go out, the waters close. There's a moment where Elijah is able to say to Elisha, it seems I've been given by prophecy the ability to give you a gift today. You tell me what you would like me to do, and if I can do it, I will do it for you before this day ends. And here's where you get this bit about the double portion, yes? Verse 9, Elisha said, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. Many, many pastors, probably meaning well, and certainly scholars have argued about how this means that Elisha is a bigger deal as a prophet, a better prophet, a bigger prophet than Elijah. So he would get double the spirit in his life and maybe do something like perform double the miracles. But if you do the math, it doesn't really work out that way at all. And then you have to reckon with this other thing. Jesus is pretty clear that Moses and Elijah are the big deal, not Moses and Elisha. Because on the mountain of transfiguration, that's who you see, is Elijah and Moses speaking with Jesus. Yeah. So Elisha's request for a double portion here can't mean, make me twice the prophet you were. Instead, it probably means what the Levitical codes say when they talk about the double portion of an inheritance. And this goes back to the idea that everyone gets a piece of the land because that's what God's going to give. And you're to hold that land with your family forever because it's going to be really amazing. And then you're going to pass it forward to all your generations along with whatever wealth you've been given. And that going forward is going to be given to the sons who will marry daughters and they'll be cared for, daughters of other men, so the daughters don't have to worry about having the inheritance so much because, of course, this is a perfect world, right? And so the sons will inherit. But the firstborn son, to show that he is the leader and, in fact, voice of the house, will get a double portion of the land. So as they split up the chunks, the firstborn always gets twice as much. So what's he really asking for is the point here. He's asking to be the next main prophet. If you're going to be taken from me, Elijah, let me be the voice that remains. 
And Elijah says, that's a hard thing right there. I can't make that decision. Oh, but apparently if you watch me ascend, it'll work. So stay with me here now. And bam, right? And this is the part that I should spend more time on, but I won't. Horses of fire? Chariot of fire? What does that even look like? I mean, there's a movie about running called Chariots of Fire. That's nothing to do with what this is really about. The armies of God, the hosts of almighty pantheonic heaven, not gods, but angels and archangels and powers and principalities. They are layers and layers of this built into the creation we can't see. And all of it is always being used by God for good. And at that moment, he showed a blip of it. Look how much power I always have around you. Remember how Elisha will use this information later in life on two occasions when his own servant will be afraid of the armies and he'll say, look again, and there'll be more armies that are made of fire outside the other armies, completely got it taken care of. It all starts right here where he sees it. And it's here for you to see it. Not so that you're going to actually see the fire, but believe it. How many angels are here today? Many, many. And when we join with Christ according to his word and his sacrament, we indeed with angels and archangels in the highest heaven where he sits, we join them there. Not just by faith, but by the mysterious personification of his joining with us. That he inhabits you. That you're a member of his body. It's a grand mystery, yes? And yet, don't miss the power of this. To be certain that far more than a chariot of fire, you have Almighty God's entire host of heaven moving your life for your good in him. Yeah? At that moment, that means... Elijah gets caught in a whirlwind. So this, this fiery chariot thing that he kind of gets into also is called a whirlwind. That language, while not normative for the Bible, that is, it's not used all the time, does have a pretty key place where it shows up. And it is the description of God in Job. In Job. When God comes at the end of Job and challenges everyone to, to recognize that he's really God, he shows up as a giant storm. A giant whirlwind is the word. Now, if you can take that word and that idea of this giant cloudy mass and maybe sprinkle a little fire in with the lightning, now you have that thing on top of Mount Sinai. And the cloudy pillar and fire, it's, it's the whirlwind. It's the same God, right? This, this bulky fire cloud mass God thing who reveals himself again as beyond all that we are. This is just him letting us see the backside when all this takes place. But he reveals himself and he grabs he grabs Elijah in the fire and he yanks him up into the sky. Now what happens next, as Elijah comes back across the river, we'll talk about how he gets across the river, all the guys who are watching think God took Elijah and threw his body into the desert. They ask to send people out to look for him. Elisha says, no. They're like, please, fine. They go out, they come back, nobody. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he went up into heaven. But by that point, other things have happened. The fire that takes him up and makes it look like he's just been torn alive in this, in this fiery chariot. Falling to the earth comes the mantle, the cloak. He picks it up. He puts it on. He walks over the river. And again, I mean, I don't know. How many, does he get to see the fiery angels the rest of his life? When he's walking up to that river, is he alone? Or is he like, whoa. <laughs> you know, and it's both in a sense, because by faith he knew. And he knew what that mantle meant. It meant God had answered the prayer. 
with a clear prophecy that Elijah himself had spoken. So he took that mantle and he hit the water with it, knowing it would break. He does not ask a question in the sense of, I wonder if it'll work. He asked the question in the sense of, hey, y'all watching? Where's God now? Boom. That's right. He's right here with my sending to speak to you. Now, you could say, that sounds awful, proud and audacious of him. Well, it would be if God hadn't sent him. But as soon as God sends you, it's not you. Huh? It's not your authority. It's not your power. Where is God, he says, right here, okay. And you better believe he was afraid too. Huh? Huh? He comes across the water, not the ground. The water closes in again. And what do they do? This is important too. Very un-American of him. And they meet him and they bow. They bow to the ground before him. They treat him like a king. As they would have treated Samuel, as they would have treated the kings, as they probably would treat most of the priests as well. Some level of social recognition and reverence. America has a weird version of this. So I'll, I'll just leave it at that. Um, but what I want to do now is take all of that and shove it into the ascension story of Jesus so you can see the overlaps, the overlaps of this man who did far more than Elijah ever did in terms of performing true signs that God was with him. Again, from the raising of children to the walking on water. He doesn't even split it. He just walks on it. He does everything more. And in his ascension, he doesn't need chariots of fire, but he certainly is covered by the clouds, right? The clouds of glory as he goes not just up, but behind and into excelsis, into God's very presence, leaving behind an authority, leaving behind a mantle. It's not a grubby old camel hair robe. It's some water and some bread and some wine. And not 50 sons of the prophets with one prophet leader, but 11 apostles with one untimely born St. Paul. And preaching that authority, right, that this ascension is not just a man going up and we're waiting, but now the triumph has occurred and the distribution of the final feast is begun as foretaste. Yeah. That that witness and authority and certainty that Elisha was able to go on and use in his life, the next thing he does is miracle and miracle and confront people who won't believe and tell them the truth and on and on. This is your gift. This is your heritage. This is your certainty. It doesn't mean you're going to be certain about you all the time. It means that the more that the scriptures become what you know, the more certain you will become about all things, including your place in them. But that begins by saying, I don't just live in America with a president. I mean, I got that. But that's like the temporary spot. I'm kind of hanging out here because I was born here but I'm expecting it all to burn because I'm an heir to a different kingdom that's not of this world and far surpasses this world, even as light surpasses nighttime, right? Day surpasses night. Believing that today for five minutes is hard. Holding that thought while you go out and the world shouts a million other things is hard. Impossible even. But again, so don't hear me telling you now, go out and try harder this week. No, no, no. What I want you to get is this. By being here in a community where other people are willing to hear this story said, you are growing. By being different than the world, by hearing this story, you are being regenerated as a group 
not just yourself individually, all your growth, all your hope, all your knowledge that you get in Christ is for us together. And what I want you to get is the ascension means he's going to do that no matter what. And so you might as well just hang on. (laughs) You would believe this thing, that he is Lord. He is king. He chooses. He chooses. And most of all, then, he chooses to save you. Let us face to this. In the name of Jesus. Amen.